Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, music, faith, and community. years now or something like that um and Bryson mentioned ash wednesday in the liturgical calendar today is what we call transfiguration sunday uh but we're not going to talk about that <laughs> it's just a terrible terrible beginning to to this sermon uh we're, we're wrapping up a series on rediscovering god's vision and we've been focusing on how god comforts those who mourn and gives beauty for ashes. And there's a, a three-verse sequence in Isaiah 61, one of the, you know, OG Old Testament prophets that says, if you want a Bible, raise your hand, someone will get a Bible to you. You can just pull it up on your phone or just listen. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And verse 3, which is kind of our focus today, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. So basically... Instead of a bad thing, you get a good thing. We're done. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's the text. Uh, Isaiah is bringing good news. And today I want to focus on the implications, the commitments uh, of, of that good news uh, for the way we live. Basically, that's it. And I want to begin with a, by kind of messing up Isaiah a little bit um, or letting Isaiah mess us up. Uh, it's the third most cited book in the Bible. I don't know if you know that. I, I went and looked at the statistics, and the other two are Deuteronomy and the Psalms. Now, I, I have no idea why the hell people are out there citing Deuteronomy, because it's really, really, it's really, really boring. Uh, it's a bunch of laws and genealogies, but whatever. Um, Isaiah is one of those foundational books of the Bible, whether we're conscious of it or not, it's got a massive influence on how folks read scripture uh, from, from the Jews all the way through Christianity. And I'm not trying to belittle, you know, I don't know, Hosea, Obadiah, like the other prophets, but there's, there, there is a reason why Isaiah is called, what we call him, one of the major prophets. Um, and when you look at that book, it's pretty well accepted in, in theology today that it is very unlikely that you know, Isaiah, the dude, sat down and wrote a book. Or even that Isaiah is a collection of one person's writings. And in theology, we talk about, you know, proto-Isaiah, Deuteronomy, whatever. Uh, I encourage you to look at Isaiah, and we're going to go through several different passages, as a particular body of biblical knowledge that is part of one tradition. So what that means is that the people who wrote Isaiah were writing... Kind of, they were drinking out of the same well. They, they, they were cross 
referencing each other. And, and the result is this corpus, this book that we call the book of Isaiah. And it probably has at least three writers, and you can forget everything I just said. All you, you have to remember is stepping into Isaiah is stepping into a conversation about the character of God and the character of God's people and the relationship between them. Everyone is doing that in the book. That's, that's pretty much the point of the biblical prophets, and Isaiah is not an exception. And one thing that is commonly done, and you'll see why in a minute, there's this long-standing tradition of reverse engineering Isaiah material in relation to Jesus, right? So Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, listen to this passage from Isaiah 53, so a couple chapters before, uh, where he says, he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised. We held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities, carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. So, you know, if you have any church background, you're like, oh, that's Jesus, right? I mean, that's the person they're describing you think, well, that dude is, I mean, Isaiah is obviously talking about Jesus. I know, however, many hundred years before Jesus came around. Um, let's, not, let's not do that. that. That's the reverse engineering that I'm talking about. Uh, there are a number of possible references that Isaiah, Isaiah can be making here that don't necessarily point to Jesus. They point to God's redemptive work. But for a prophet writing in Old Testament Israel, that's very open um, but we can think about kind of a flow of tradition, like a river, through Isaiah and into the gospel writers, right? So the people who wrote the story of Jesus, we have four gospels, and they were certainly aware of this massive influence of Isaiah, and they, they it's like a band doing a cover song. You take the material and you run with it. All gospel writers do that. They're, they're pulling stuff from Old Testament scripture because for their readership who knew that scripture, it was like, oh, okay, oh, okay, let's connect these two dots. This makes sense. So the river brings stuff along, yeah? So the Gospels and Isaiah are not disconnected. What I'm saying is that it's not an automatic or a simple connection. It's a complex and intimate connection. And there's one theologian, C.A. Evans, who says that Jesus' gospel is essentially Isaiah's gospel, which I find very interesting. He's saying that they're basically saying the same thing. The context has changed, but the call is the same. The commitment is the same. Um, Isaiah sets the tone for the telling of the Jesus story, which is the center of Christian scripture. So Isaiah is a big deal, okay? That's basically what I'm trying to say. And you'll find it, for example, uh, in, in the gospel of Luke, so... Uh, Luke was a pretty nerdy guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he says in, in Luke 4, he's, he's telling the story about Jesus and says, when Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue, to, you know, the Jewish church, on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We just read that. So Luke 4 reads Isaiah 61 because he goes on. The Spirit of the Lord has, has, is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, so on and so forth. And then Jesus rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, everyone's looking at him, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his mouth, and, and they said, is that not Joseph's son? So what, what does Jesus do? Jesus returns to the place where he grew up in Galilee and goes back home on purpose where people know him since he was a kid and says, I'm, I'm the one. It's kind of awkward, right? I mean, you know, we, we know this guy. He grew up around here picking his nose, getting in people's ways, uh, you know, hammering his own finger. He was the son of a carpenter. What do you mean? What do you, what? what? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. If any of us stood up in the middle of the service, listen, y'all, the spirit of the Lord, we're like, shut up, sit down. You know, we're having a good liturgy here. What are you doing? Um, Luke is very clearly leveraging the Isaiah tradition to make a claim about the divinity of Jesus. So he's taking this text, which is massively important for uh, the, the Jews, and he's he's... He's dressing Jesus in the text. And he says that Jesus says that I am the one, right? Uh, another theologian, uh, Sawyer, says that Jesus' public ministry begins when he comes to Nazareth in the power of the Spirit and reads this passage. So it's almost like this, this moment where uh, Jesus' growing up has ended and he's like, okay, now... We're going to get down to business. And from there on, he proceeds to walk around and do a bunch of stuff and finally is crucified uh, in Jerusalem. So as we talk about these texts, I, I want to address a, an elephant in the theological room. If you, like me, come from a church context in which scripture is seen as literal, as, as inerrant, this passage is problematic because you might be asking in your head, well, what do you mean? Are you saying that Luke isn't just literally conveying what Jesus is saying right there and then? Well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. It's not like there was a stenographer recording Jesus' every word, you know, like an intern walking around or someone following him around with an iPhone. You know, Jesus, can you say that again? There's a little bit of wind. We didn't really get what you said. Can you repeat? That, that's not how that works. The gospel writers are connecting this incredible Jesus person to long-standing expectations that Israel had about salvation. A bad thing for a good thing. It's like Luke is saying, pay attention because this, this Jesus is the embodiment, the incarnation of your expectations. This Jesus does come from God uh, and the connection that Luke make, makes here is not just about the person of Jesus, but also, and this is really important for us, about the mission of Jesus. Why is he, what is he doing here? And he leverages Isaiah 61 to clarify who Jesus is and what he's doing walking around, you know, telling cryptic parables, uh, healing people. 
So these broad expectations about God and about deliverance and about redemption, about salvation, about restoration are personified in this Jesus. And that's what Luke is pointing to with Isaiah 61. So let's unpack the images and try to understand what the text is telling us. And I'm, it's like I'm using Luke 4 as a lens and I'm reading Isaiah through that lens. And I promise we'll get to a point where, uh, you know, the question, what, well, what are we doing? Hopefully we'll, we'll go somewhere with that. So there's two things that, that, that Isaiah likes as a metaphor. He likes to talk about God and God's people as a marital relationship. And he likes to talk about gardening, like trees and plants and whatnot. And you, we see that in the, you know, in, the, in the text that we read at the beginning. Um, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, uh, that kind of thing is really common in, in the book of Isaiah. And it's, a, it's, it's imagery that's used kind of throughout the book between writers, which I find very interesting. You know, if, you, if, if Isaiah was written by three people, what, they're all obsessed with gardening? I, I said they're, they're drinking from the same well. And there's one passage in Isaiah 5, we call it the Song of the Vineyard. So way early in the book, uh, and, I, and that, that passage is, is interesting. I will sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. So there's that marital relationship and the gardening thing. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded rotten grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of, Ju of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield rotten grapes? So Isaiah 5 is a story in which everything that can go wrong does and everyone is screwed at the end. Great, great news, great job, Isaiah. Uh, and, you know, he goes on to say, I will make it a wasteland, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. God is pissed, y'all. But you see, the metaphor is there, the garden thing, right, and the relationship thing. There's a connection of images between Isaiah 5, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 55, Isaiah 53. Like, you could go on and on and on about these connections and nerd out if you want to. Uh, but there's a contrast. And, and one theologian, Rebecca Hayes, says that the vineyard owner in Isaiah 5 is disappointed because the garden does not, does not yield uh, fruits of righteousness. But the garden in chapter 61 contains righteous oaks, right? Oaks of righteousness. Uh, so, you know, a bad story becomes a good story. It might take you 50 plus chapters to get there, but a bad story becomes a good story. In, in Isaiah 61, instead of judgment and punishment, the portrait is one of salvation, using the same metaphor that he used before to depict a broken relationship a reversal of the imagery, right? And what I want to invite us to do with Luke is in that contrast, a bad story into a good story, place Jesus right in the middle. 
right in the center of that flip of that inversion is the person of Jesus. And uh, I want to refer to two African theologians, um, Mary, Ob I don't know how to say their names, Obiora and Favor Uroko. They're from South Africa, Nigeria. And what they say is that the three verses in Isaiah that we read, verses 1, 2, and 3 of Isaiah 61, outline the person of redemption and the mission of redemption. So it's who does it and what is done. And they say that the Spirit of the Lord, right, that's how the passage starts, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. They say that Spirit anoints the person to perform these actions for the good of the community. So who gets saved? The community gets saved. It's not just one person, it's the community. It's the surroundings, it's the neighborhood, it's the city, it's the village, it's the family. So that sequence of Isaiah 61, one to three is verse one. Through the power of the spirit, you get this person who's equipped to do the work. Verse 2, there's an allusion to the year of the Jubilee, the year of the, Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. So in Jewish law, and if you really want to nerd out on this, you can go back to the, you know, the first books of the Bible. The year of Jubilee, every seven years, all debt was erased. That's the year of the Lord, of the, the year of the favor of the Lord. So already in verse 2, you have this, uh, this concrete consequence of the Spirit of the Lord coming into play. It's not just spiritual impact. It's financial impact. It's social impact. It rewrites relationships between people, between who owes the money and who wants the money, who borrowed the money. It's very interesting uh, in Jewish law how that, that gets played out. And then verse 3, finally, is a portrait of what happens when those relationships are rebalanced. Right? In verse 3, those who mourn and are faint in spirit receive a garland, oil, a garment of praise. They turn glad, and that is a witness to the work of God. So in verse 3, that inversion, that, re that, that, that reversal that I talked about happens. New life, new celebration, uh, a re-centralization of, of life, if you will, that has interior implications in terms of how people feel, but also has exterior implications and clear impacts upon society. Implications on the surface and deep within the soil of society. That change, according to Luke, reading Isaiah, happens through relationship with this Jesus who is the servant. So Jesus is at the center. And I kept thinking about this as I was writing the sermon. Jesus at the center of it all. Right? He, he kind of like sits in the middle of the room of, of this whole dynamic. Okay? So we've seen how Luke and Isaiah are connected. Uh, we've seen how Luke leverages a tradition of scripture to explain who Jesus is and why that matters. But how do we kind of connect to that story? And I know today's sermon is a lot of like theological heavy lifting and whatnot. So I want to get straight to the point and say that reading Isaiah 61 through the lens of Luke 4 catapults 
the commission to mission to our own lives. What do I mean by that? There's a term that we use called uh, holistic mission. Now, Christianity is really good at infighting, right? We're really good at splitting. We're really good at telling everyone that we're right and they're wrong. We're really good at starting new churches because we're going to get it right this time and that never seems to happen. By the way, I'm, not a pe- I'm totally a pessimist. But you, you get what I'm saying, right? That cr- we're really good at bickering. We're really good at infighting. Uh, and one of those, those constant quibbles is between uh, these different views of what mission is, right? One view is that mission is basically getting people to pray the sinner's prayer and say, you know, oh, okay, now I understand Jesus is my Savior, I accept you in my heart, good, you're going to heaven, that's it, it's spiritual. There's this other track that says, no, uh, Christian witness is about feeding people. It's about righting social wrong. It's about um, fighting for the cause of, you know, the oppressed. And holistic mission takes a kind of, not an either-or approach, but an and approach to those things and says that transformation is something that happens within us, but it also happens around us. It is embodied. It has to do with the way we live, with the way we treat people, with our ethics. And I think it's fair to say that for both Isaiah and Luke, and I don't think Jesus would disagree based on what I see in the Bible, that salvation and redemption, these things that Isaiah is talking about, are about much more than just a spiritual response to God's invitation. They have implications for how we live. And I really like, uh, there's another theologian, N.T. Wright, who says, the fact is that sin and evil constitute bad news in every area of life on this planet. The redemptive work of God through the cross of Christ is good news for every area of life on earth that has been touched by sin, which means every area of life. Bluntly, says N.T. Wright, we need a holistic gospel because the world is in a holistic mess. Okay. We need a holistic gospel because the world is in a holistic mess. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel. The environment's a mess. Relationships are a mess. It's just all a mess, y'all. Again, try not to be a pessimist here, but it's getting hard. But if, if N.T. Wright is right, and evil touches every area of life on this planet, that means that the project of restoration that Isaiah is talking about also touches on every aspect of life on this planet. It touches on the environment. It touches on your relationship with your boss and your employees, your coworkers, your family. It touches on the way you spend your money, the way you drive. And that, that happens through us. And that's the implication. Is, you know, one way to read Isaiah 61 is say, cool, cool, cool. So you got this spirit of the Lord on this person. The person now has this responsibility. Awesome. Thank you. The other way is to catapult that into our own lives and say, you got the spirit of the Lord on this person that has this mission, and we are partners in that mission. In the words of another theologian called Steve Mason, we need to look at ourselves as servants of the servant. So if Jesus is a servant with a capital S, then we're also servants. 
with an ethical obligation to live how Jesus lived. We, we kind of inherit this, this commitment into our own reality. And then, you know, one might say, well, see, there's the problem because that's not what I signed up for. I just, can I just have the personal salvation part and not have to do? You can't. I'm, it doesn't work that way. Because sharing in the restoration project of Isaiah, of Jesus, the one that Luke is talking about, it puts you on the books for, for living that life. It, you know, all this is a really fancy way to say you can't have your dessert without eating your spinach. Um, and that's what Isaiah and Luke help us to see. Mason goes on. He says, while this expectation was fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus, Christians, by definition, are to carry on the gospel legacy. That's what he calls it. By virtue of the eternal covenant, they've been awarded. So this relationship works both ways. And he says, to act upon the gospel is as fundamental as proclaiming it, to speak and to do. And we are bound to both. Scripture does not advocate any other kind. Ouch. Scripture does not advocate any other kind. So there you have it. Now, I want to come back at the end of the sermon to the stuff that we're not talking about, Transfiguration Sunday and the beginning of Lent, which is happening this week, right? Um, that's a funny story if you ever read it. It's, it's in the Gospel of Mark. And what happens is that Jesus goes up a mount, mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, John, and James. And there's this vision where these Old Testament prophets, old Moses, uh, and Elijah appear with Jesus and they, like it's dazzling light and it's, you know, it's a beautiful vision or whatever. And then Peter turns to Jesus and says, well, okay, well, let's build a couple tents and we'll just stay here on top of the mountain. And Jesus immediately turns to him with, with what I imagine is, is a look of, you still don't get it on his face and says, no, we have to go back down the mountain. We're not going to stay in the shiny place. We're going to go back to the grimy place. That's the lesson of Transfiguration Sunday. It's a story about an epiphany, a realization that goes over our heads that we're constantly trying to understand and that these Old Testament prophets and the gospel writers are, are trying to help us understand the massive love, the incredible commitment, the depth of grace of a God who dies for our sins. A God who steps into the grimy place to do the work and who invites us to do the same. So as we step into Lent this week, uh, Ash Wednesday is on, well, it's in the name, on Wednesday. That was terrible. Uh, Lent is an invitation to deep reflection, right? There are two waiting periods in the Christian calendar. One is Advent, where we kind of prepare ourselves for for the coming of Jesus, and Advent, I mean, sorry, Lent, where we prepare for the realization of the story of, 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 of Jesus, the crucifixion and resurrection. And the invitation to Lent is that it's not just abstract or mental. My question for you is, how does Lent change the way you live? How does Lent change the way you live? Last week, I was in Colombia speaking at a thing and it's carnival in Colombia, as it is in Brazil. You know, 
I'm here in church, but in Brazil, people are following a whole bunch of, you know, parties that are happening. Uh, it's a big deal in my country. Carnival is, let's, let's have all the fun before Lent starts, right? And once, once Fat Tuesday is over, then Ash Wednesday, we're supposed to look stoic and feel miserable for 40 days. And the history of that is really interesting. I'm not going to get into it, but I, I don't think that's what we should be doing for Lent. I mean, the, I don't think that's the invitation at all. The question is still there. How does stepping into this passage, how does stepping into Isaiah through Luke, um, preparing for the, the center of the Jesus story, in, inform the way that I want to live my life? And yeah, that's something we should be thinking about all year. But seasons like Lent, for me, highlight that question. So, you know, I don't, I'm not sure giving up coffee or whatever it is you want to do for Lent makes much sense uh, beyond helping you to remember these deep commitments that May, Mason is talking about, right? These, these gospel legacy commitments that he's talking about, that Isaiah is talking about, that Luke is talking about. The question is, just, just as Jesus embodies God's intention for salvation, how is that embodied in how we understand servanthood, righteous action, advocacy, taking a bad thing and giving it a good ending? Lent is an invitation to, to respond to Isaiah's invitation. So I would like you to stand up for our benediction.